The last time uh, July 4th was on a Sunday was 2010. I was at my church in, in Philadelphia when something amazing happened. My preaching that day inspired a second declaration of independence. That is to say, soon afterwards, a member declared herself independent of our congregation. You will be relieved to know I am not going to recycle that sermon now or anytime soon. And admittedly, the verdict from some observers was that that was a growth by attrition, gulp. But there was a more significant, a much more significant attrition to come. In 2014, Resurrection Community Church, uh, the church I pastored for 12 years, closed. My brother described my ministry as church hospice. I think that kind of puts a gracious and redemptive spin on it. I confess, though, in my less sanctified moments, I regard it more as a source of self-doubt, an indicator of vocational incompetence, um, a resume non-builder, <laughs> a maximum impact moment of midlife crisis, it's in fact a, a beautiful story um, that, that bears the imprint of God's gracious sovereignty. But honestly, I still struggle to see beyond the idea of personal defeat. It was a hard pill to swallow. I mean, in life, I want to succeed. I want to attain greatness, or at least have people think I am. I like to win, win the game, win the day, win the battle, win others' approval, Win the argument, especially that one. Win the argument in person, online, in print, the classroom, as a teacher, husband, parent, colleague, whatever. I want to have the last word. And I don't mean, you know, I give up or, heaven forbid, you're right. As Cambridge uh, sociologist Darren Weinberg put it, um, it matters not whether you win or lose. It matters whether I win or lose. <laughs> I think fitness guru uh, Jillian Michaels, though, is a lot wiser. A bad day for your ego is a good day for your soul. Truth. Um, as sobering, though, a demand as Philippians 2 makes upon us, the scripture Josie just read, um, the gift it yields is far greater. So join me as we wrestle with this scripture, Philippians 2, 5 through 13. Um, I find it exceptionally ironic that these verses, which mandate an abject humility and servanthood, perhaps you know this already, they happen to be some of the most argued over verses in all of scripture. Turns out that translators and theologians go to the mat over that passage. One example is, is verse 7, Christ Jesus made himself nothing, um, or literally emptied himself. That single word generates a high-stakes contest about the incarnation of Christ. But those subtleties are way above my pay grade and uh, purpose today. And honestly, with all, with all due respect to, to brilliant scholars, um, this passage is not nearly so much about the nature of Christ as the example of Christ. 
It's minimally concerned with theory and maximally concerned with practice. Funny how debating about vocabulary can be such an effective distraction from earnest obedience. So this morning, I'm just going to sidestep the admittedly fascinating theological mysteries and focus on what is crystal clear. Followers of Christ must be losers. Humiliation-embracing, self-emptying losers. Even when we could win, Jesus was, is God for crying out loud in your attitude, be like Christ Jesus. Despite the potential injustice of personal loss, independent of an outcome that looks horrifically bad, followers of Christ must be losers. That's the straightforward declaration of Philippians 2. It's the example and mandate of our loser-in-chief, Jesus Christ. He did not exploit his rights, his divine right, nor his limitless might, nor his capacity to overrule evil-doing opponents. He shunned preservation of himself. He was taken advantage of, yet opened not his mouth. From the moment of the manger to the silence of Holy Saturday, he defied fallen human logic. His plan? Choose to lose. Choose to lose. Well, not quite. He did purpose to eventually win, and, and ultimately he achieved that victory in spades. But his actively chosen path to victory was defeat. It, it's kind of Robert Frost on steroids. He took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. At this point, allow me to get my uh, inner Ken Shank on and reference the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, if you were privileged to hear him preach recently, a few weeks ago, you know he did so as well. One thing I've, I'm fond of highlighting to my 11th grade Bible students is uh, the stark contrast between most Marvel messiahs and the Philippians 2 messiah. If any recent students are here, I'm sorry, yet one more time you have to endure my refrain, but here it is. Marvel superheroes and, frankly, pretty much all Hollywood protagonists they win simply because they are better than being bad than the bad guys. They're better at being bad than the bad guys. I mean, the Hulk, stronger and angrier. Thor, bigger hammer. Bad guy shoots, good guy shoots faster. Bad guy kicks good guy, good guy kicks back harder. Yeah, understand I'm actually a sucker for a good superhero movie myself, and Marvel certainly makes some good ones. So I'm not slamming Marvel so much as uh, seeking an expose of the heart. My unsanctified instinct, my burning desire, is to see bad guys get trounced, get their just desserts, even experience the same and more pain than they've dished out to others. But Christ... His superpower isn't pounding into the pavement, the enemy, even though he could. Instead, Christ's superpower is losing, and he is our example. 
Now, perhaps your instinct is, is rather Mark Twain-ish, who bemoans, uh, few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. But if a good example is annoying, then perhaps a perfect example is downright intolerable. The seeming insanity of Christ's superpower example, if you will, it dumbfounds and confounds the world. To welcome a path of self-loss is nonsensical, undesirable, worthy of scorn, at, at times even offensive. The wisdom of the world says, win at all costs, I am the greatest, my way or the highway. Show me a, loser, a good loser and I'll show you a loser. But the apostle clarifies, the person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So the world doesn't grasp this losing stuff, but yeah, I'm a Christian, so surely I do. Alas, seldom. Try these two examples on for size. When scripture talks about marital relationships and tells me I am to imitate the bridegroom Christ, which Christ am I imitating? The verses 9 through 11 Christ exalted to the highest place? <laughs> you know I wouldn't get away with that. Or the verse 6 through 8 Christ made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Because if it's the 9 through 11 Christ, I'll conceive of myself as the decider the last word, the one to whom knees should bow. But if I reckon my calling to be imitating the verses 6 through 8 Christ, then wow. Instead of the decider, I should more often be the conceder. I don't mean muzzle earnest persuasion or even hearty discussion, but with regret. I'm confronted with how seldom I ultimately am a willing and gracious conceder. To put it bald-facedly, how seldom as a spouse I truly obey Philippians 2. And a second example, the Philippians 2 rubber hits the online road as well. A number of months ago I left Facebook because in part I, I couldn't stop wanting to win. In my mind, I want to win for Jesus Christ, and I'm certainly deeply convicted. But in my heart, I'm pretty sure that far too often, my own benefit and self-interest get enmeshed with whatever redemptive intentions I may have. I'm, in, I'm increasingly convinced and, and grieved that in a multitude of ways throughout daily life, online and otherwise, I have been in love with the exalted verses 9 through 11 Christ much more than the emptied 6 through 8 Christ. Favoring 9 through 11 is an alluring self-deception because it can still sound very Christian-y. 
I mean, Jesus is Lord and all that stuff, so I better say it. But loving only the exalted Christ requires little investment beyond my voice and a sizable dose of indignation. In stark contrast, devotion to the self-emptying Christ demands more of me. For starters, I must learn to just shut up and be a loser. So what about you? In what way might this scripture call you to lose? Perhaps the Holy Spirit will nudge you to forgive someone who has still not acknowledged the hurt they caused you. To sidestep justifying yourself to a critical colleague. To accept the rebuke or counterpoint from a teacher or mentor or pastor. To seek forgiveness from your, nonetheless, attitude-challenged adolescent. <laughs> to stop pouring yourself into countering neighborhood gossip about you. To bow out of an argument even though it makes you appear weak. Wherever the Lord is nudging you, allow Philippians 2 to do its work. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, but made himself nothing. Let's turn our backs on any instinct to pursue the kind of winning that insists on self-gain. Point number one this morning, be a loser like Christ. Have you ever wondered what a, a, a historical figure's voice sounded like, a particular figure? I mean, wouldn't it be more impressive than fireworks tonight if we could play a recording of, say, Thomas Jefferson reading the Declaration of Independence? Or better, King George's exclamation when he received it. <laughs> I'm not really sure what the Apostle Paul's voice sounded like, but at least when he intoned verse 12 of Philippians 2, I'm pretty sure he spoke with a heavy southern drawl. Work out y'all's salvation with fear and trembling. It's a shame that Yankee English doesn't distinguish between the singular you, you John, you Amanda, and the plural you, all of you here streaming online. Happily, folks south of the Mason-Dixon line, as well as speakers of New Testament Greek, can tell the difference. And it's important to know that the vocabulary Paul employs here is indeed plural. The, the context and the grammatical connotation of this plural actually lends itself to a sort of singular everyone together. Hey, Philippian church, by extension, hey, Houghton Wesleyan. Hey, Church in America. Hey, Church Global. Y'all, body of Christ, work out your salvation. Not work for salvation. We already possess it by grace. Work out with a holy awe and a profound humility. Strive for self-emptying that refines, perfects, completes the whole church's salvation. All this to say that while 
Philippians 2 obviously speaks to our personal relationships. That's even the introduction to it. It's not a big stretch to say that the trajectory of this chapter extends to how Team Jesus, how the community of Christ loses and wins together along the road to eternity. So people of God, y'all, hear this sobering statement. It's not only the watching world that struggles with Philippians chapter 2, nor is it simply a few particularly unsanctified believers like myself that have an aversion to losing. All too often, the church trips over the stumbling block, rejects the foolishness of the cross. One hallmark of this is, is when the church heralds the message of Christ without the method of Christ. Message, but not method. We tout Christ's victory, but not via our own loss. We trumpet Christ our King, but as those seated on his right and left. We, we revel in the exaltation described by verses 9 through 11, but studiously avoid experiencing the humiliation mandated by verses 6 through 8. And humiliation is the right word. While humility can seem admirable, humiliation is something else entirely. It's one thing to endure suffering, but to endure shame, unjust, undeserved, and not defend oneself, not stand up for the truth about oneself. Wow. And yet, the humiliation that Christ welcomed is what his church is called to. Sisters and brothers, y'all, here and everywhere, if the church is to lead others along the road to Golgotha, we must walk with a cross on our back. We cannot drive a chariot and hoist a trophy will blow right by the Mount of Crucifixion and probably flatten Jesus along the way. If the church is to lead others along the road to Golgotha, we must take up our cross and follow Jesus who is walking ahead of us. Verses 6 through 8, emptying, is the root to verses 9 through 11, exaltation, not vice versa. Pause and consider, how would the watching world likely describe the church today? As cross-carrying, Jesus-following losers? Or as trophy-raising chariot riders jockeying for the win? What will it take for us to truly believe that the way of the cross that Christ commands must hold sway over the way of the scepter that we demand? What will it take for us to truly believe that the way of the cross that Christ commands must hold sway over the way of the scepter that we demand? In the time of Jesus, rabbis taught that the Messiah would come if Israel was worthy. Obeying the law, they taught, would hasten the coming of the Messiah. One teaching even proposed a formula that if all Israel precisely observed the Sabbath laws for two weeks in a row, the Messiah would appear. 
That mindset was one of the reasons the Pharisees had such disdain for and disassociation with prostitutes, thieving tax collectors, morally challenged of all sorts. They believed that the disobedience of sinners in Israel was preventing the arrival of the Messiah. Classic MO of Pharisees, inverting the order of grace and obedience. God's favor contingent on holiness achieved. And of course, from the Pharisees' perspective, it's others' disobedience that was the problem. Others' sin was preventing benefit to those who were truly godly. If only those people would repent, then we would be blessed. The Pharisees had no heartrending concern for the wayward, no delight that grace could come to the lost, no vision that the Messiah doctor was coming to heal the sick rather than laud and honor the healthy. And so the religious experts missed the Messiah because they were intent on a winner that would free them from Rome. They failed to recognize the loser who could free them from sin. They sought the achievement of victory, but shunned the grace of loss. Pause and consider. What do you think a watching world would say the church is more desperate to do today? To enforce Jesus or to imitate him? To accomplish verses 9 through 11, exaltation, or to demonstrate verses 6 through 8, emptying. We're faced with a tough reality. The church is not in a win-win situation. Jesus lost it all, and thus he has infinitely won. We win because Christ lost for us. When the church loses like Jesus, those who need Jesus win. So let us welcome the backwards gift, the freedom of loss. And oh, there is such freedom in loss, such blessing, such grace, such winning. This is the unshakable calling and assurance of Philippians 2. Anyone going to light sparklers at lunchtime today? Or how about fireworks? Going to go to a show this afternoon? Why not? Because a sunny sky makes fireworks rather unimpressive. Hard to see, not particularly amazing, but at night, stunning. I rather think it's like that with love and losing. Perhaps the deepest gift, the greatest grace that comes to us through losing is that it provides the church with our only viable opportunity to demonstrate something even close to how Christ loves. After all, how can we bear the, the, to others the love of the cross without bearing a cross? The prerequisite for loving like Christ is to lose like Christ. We can't truly grasp the grandeur of the fireworks if it's not dark outside. If the church does not, as Christ does here in Philippians 2, accept humiliation, if we rebuke each insult, eliminate every opponent, refuse any injury, what opportunity do we truly have to imitate the depth of our Savior's love? 
love that hinges on self-emptying defeat. Love whose heights can only be grasped when it rises out of the valley of injustice and humiliation. If the church fights tooth and nail to avoid losing ground, losing protection, losing privilege, losing stature, what chance do we have to display the unearthly, logic-defying, neighbor-transforming love of our model Jesus Christ? How can we ever claim to be obeying Philippians 2 if when our own entitlements are on the line, we never accept losing them? If the church's response to worldly maltreatment is to fight like hell, we're unlikely to win many for heaven. Folks may bow the knee to us, but will they to Jesus? Family of God, hear this. Winning at all costs is a contradiction in terms. Winning is never the costliest route. Winning, is a winning at all costs is a contradiction in terms because only losing requires the ultimate cost. We must be desperate to lose at all costs. Of course, I'm not saying be a Christian masochist. Welcome evil, yeah. Christ didn't crucify himself. Nor am I suggesting, and hear me clearly, I am not remotely implying that we shouldn't labor diligently to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, that we shouldn't seek victory for the oppressed, use the tools of our respective gifts and vocations to oust the prince of this world and expand the reign of God's righteousness, defending the cause of the weak, seeking the benefit of others, that's a battle we must lavishly expend ourselves to win and win big. But that's another sermon with another scripture text. If we accept the difficult calling of Philippians 2, then a flashing red warning light needs to go off on the church's instrument panel when we find ourselves passionately advancing any interest that is, if we're honest, much more about self-benefit than integral to the gospel of the emptying Christ. Instead, when things get uncomfortable for us, we have been gifted a golden opportunity to lose and love like Christ. I leave you with this. Ponder and pray about your, about our willingness to lose. To embrace the calling of Philippians 2, to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, requires that we welcome the kind of illogical, voluntary self-emptying that he modeled. And each time that happens, the world will be confused, utterly baffled enough to ask, what reason do you have for hope when you're such a loser? Let us always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. And that answer is rooted in this great comfort. We embrace the freedom of loss because our humiliated Savior has already won. He is Lord of all. Death has lost. We are forever free.
Amen.